Hello and welcome to She's Creative with me, Claire Hodgson. Each episode, I chat to a different woman who works within the creative industries, discovering how she turned creativity into a career. My guest on this episode is journalist Moya Lothian-McLean. Moya is the politics editor of Galdem magazine and a freelance journalist. She has worked in print, digital, audio and video for the likes of BBC, The Independent and Vice. She also works in radio production and presents visual content. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Moya. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real honour. To start things off, uh, where did you grow up and what did your parents do for a living? Ah, interesting. So I grew up in a tiny little rural town. Well, it wasn't even a town. It was a hamlet. So it's called a place called Herefordshire. It's on the border of Wales. And where I grew up is a two-bedroom cottage, proper old school, black and white vibes. Um, There was only one other house around. You had to walk a mile to the nearest bus. So I was a real like country hick, which was quite the culture shock when I came to London as an 18-year-old. And my mother, my dad wasn't around, but my mum was previously in her old life a lecturer but when I was five she gave all that up and decided to become a yoga teacher this was before yoga teaching was cool (laughs) it was very much before hot yoga was a thing so she moved us up to the countryside which is where all my sort of family live on my white side Um, and she taught yoga to the elderly population of Hereford which didn't bring in much money (laughs) at all. But it was an idyllic sort of childhood where you're running wild around this massive common with only sheep for your friends, which explains why a lot of my social skills are so woolly. Um, But yeah, that was that was that was all my early upbringing. Um, So I didn't come from a background that was in journalism, but I did come from a very sort of middle class background, which was from an early age, I was aware that university and sort of was an option and that getting out of my small town was a thing that I could do. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in the countryside as well. And my mom's also training to be a yoga teacher, weirdly. So when did you know that you wanted to be a journalist? Uh, I don't think I ever did. And I still don't think I do now, to be honest with you. It's something I fell into, um, funnily enough, which is a weird thing to say, given it's such an elite profession now elitist not elite because it's not there's a lot of top people who aren't very good who get into it quite easily um but it's a very elitist profession so falling into it is a strange thing to say but I think from young I'd always written I'd always written stories and I'd always been a precocious little shit if you don't mind me saying like I've been (laughs) the Hermione Granger of the class so I was really that annoying little like bookworm kid um so I'd always been good at writing I'd always been good at English so my mother had always been like you always you're gonna either like perform on stage because I was a massive show off or you're going to do something writing wise and as I got older it became pretty apparent that writing was one of the only things I could actually do to a degree that people would pay me for it other than folding clothes so and I didn't want to work in Urban Outfitters forever and I worked there too so. Oh my god! <laughs> Hi! Wasn't the discount amazing? Yeah, oh my god, that discount. <laughs> <laughs> the, way, the way I was dressed throughout university, whew, um, <laughs> I really miss that discount. I actually yeah. probably would work in Urban Outfits forever just for that discount again. Mm-hmm. R.I.P. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I was, I, when I got to the end of uni, then I was sort of like, I'd already started writing. Um, for Vice, I, actually, that's, go, that's going a bit further in the story, so I'll let you ask that. But um, let's just say that I 
yeah, I'd always written. I'd always been good at English. Books and words came easily to me. I understood them, whereas something like maths didn't, which is why I probably prize maths a bit more as an, um, a discipline. Like I'd much rather be better at adding up than I am at putting some words together, but this is what I got. When you went to university, what did you, what did you study and what university did you go to? Okay, so I went to King's College London, um, which was my second choice. I was actually really lucky that Durham rejected me because I would have been absolutely insufferable can we swear on this podcast by the way yeah 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 okay great i was <laughs> i was very lucky that darren rejects me because i've been fucking even more insufferable if i'd gone there can you imagine um i was a state school kid as well so being surrounded by the likes of the durhamites for four years would have made me just awful i can't imagine like shit airs and graces that i put on um but so i went to, i went to london and i'd always i'd always weirdly i don't know if you've ever had this you go somewhere, you have a feeling of like something you're going to end up doing. And I don't want to call it fate or destiny because I don't quite believe in those things. But I do think there are sort of like energy vectors that you feel tap into and you're like, oh, I'm probably going to end up there at some point. And ever since I've been a little kid, I'd always loved London. Um, and when I was 10, I, for my birthday present, I was like, I want to go to London, see the mummies. And I just remember seeing upstairs in the attic room I was staying in of my mum's friend's house and being like hearing London and because we're in Peckham and just feeling it and being like I want to be here I want to live here and that's not unusual like so there's a reason London is so massive everyone loves it but um I just I, I just knew that there was something in my future that would take me there so when I ended up at going to King's um I studied history um and I the way I, I think I taught treated it or rather the way I treated my degree was more of an excuse to get into the city than mm. actually studying, which is a very privileged position to be in. But yeah, I did history and I did love history, but I also didn't spend much time at my university. I spent a lot of time either working at Urban Outfitters or just kind of going out and seeing the city and, and like, I guess, becoming an adult in a way that wasn't defined by going to the lecture hall. Um, and it was at this point that I started making my first forays into writing for Cold Hard Cash, although there wasn't much of it at that time, but it was there. It was there. And how did you first, you know, slide into doing that? I think sliding in is a great <laughs> way to put it. And that is, um, yeah, very, very good description of how it happened. So growing up as a kid in rural Herefordshire, I'd read Vice every kid in a rural area had read Vice and been like, wow, is this what being cool's like? And then you get there and you're like, no, this is, this is, anyone can do this. This is a lot of like very bitter mid twenties people um, writing, <laughs> writing what it means to be cool in a big listicle. I should know, I was one of them. And yeah, so I'd read Vice and I'd loved Vice. And when I got to university, I started writing a music blog basically imitating Vice, if I'm straight up. It was imitating the noisy vertical of Vice, which is now shuttered, which makes me feel very old. Um, and so I wrote in their style, and I don't know how to this day, or why this man was following me, but Alex Hoffman, who was the head of music at Noisy, was following me on Twitter. Don't know why, I had maybe 400 followers, all of whom were pretty much exclusively Herefordshire people. And he saw it and he told the editor of Noisy um, to basically DM me and get in touch and ask if I would be willing to write something for them. And so I did write something for them and it was absolute shit, but they still published it with a lot of edits. The first thing I wrote for them was diabolical. <laughs> it was something like, 
what does your why we need to ban sad Christmas music or turn to Christmas music and it was just trying so hard uh, very embarrassing you can still read it it's still up there somewhere I think unless it was lost in the big content move but yeah it was really bad uh, and then the second thing I wrote for them was something that I wrote because I actually like I believed in it it wasn't trying to be something that I thought they'd like it was something I felt and I was passionate about and it was about um how I think how we grew up with Odd Future and it was it was on the subject of sort of how Odd Future changed since I was at college in those short years and how it mirrored the development of the people I've been to college with and you know how I'd grown up alongside them and it was sort of like we'd grown from teenagers and we were starting to become adults making our first forays into the world and that was good like it was a good piece um I was really happy with it and they really liked it so they decided to keep asking me to freelance for them and that was my first sort of foot and door and I was really lucky um because it's not usually that easy and also it made people at my uni think I was very cool us working at Urban Outfitters as well but double double wow well it was really funny because like at university I had probably about three friends um and those were made in basically my third year so I wasn't cool at all and I didn't have I wasn't a big name on campus but I remember when I did my first couple of Vice pieces some guy came up to me and was like oh my god uh you're in my class aren't you yeah you write you've written for Vice is this all it takes for people to think that you're anything just like some byline and yeah I was like wow really like that was when I realised like popularity or whatever, that it's just a sham. It's such yeah. a sham. <laughs> in, in terms of when you were freelance, you started freelancing for mm-hmm. Vice, were you just continually pitching stuff or did they come to you with things? Uh, so it's interesting. I've always hated pitching, as I think a lot of people do. I wouldn't call myself lazy with pitching, but I would call myself not very confident. And so... At the start, I would occasionally shoot over ideas, but more often than not, it would be them saying, like, I did a couple of pieces that I'd thought of. And at first I was very passionate and eager to get my foot in the door, as it were. So I pitched more than, um, but I wasn't writing loads and loads. It was the occasional pieces. And that was because a lot of the time it takes energy to come up with these things. And there are some people out there who are great. They're ideas factories. They'll always constantly have a new idea and be confident in their execution. Whereas I have a lot of ideas, but I wasn't always confident that I would get them done in time because my work ethic at that time was pretty poor. Um, So I'd be like, it will take me three weeks to write this one thing. So it was more a mix of, um, I'd say the ratio is probably about actually this is not ratios work actually that's ratios 60 40 probably 60 40 i mean 40 percent me pitching six percent them coming to me but they were happy enough with i think because i was a young person and maybe because i was brown too that might have played a part they were quite keen to i guess keep me around um at one point they got me into actually do holiday cover for one of their writers sort of like so i never interned there but they always paid me which i was also very lucky about because usually when they did those kind of things you'd just be an intern but I got to be a fully fledged sort of like freelancer. I wasn't a full-time freelancer and I wasn't doing anything like I wouldn't, I wouldn't call myself like, oh, I'm a journalist at that stage, but I was doing enough that it felt like the start of something that I could put on my CV or something I could be like, look, I have got these bylines. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, it also fluctuated depending on what deadlines I had and depending on go on sorry uh, yeah it also fluctuated fluctuated depending on what deadlines i had um and what how i was feeling my mood because when you're 19 years old and you know life's going on there's 
while you can be excited about stuff like that, there's also so many other things that you're thinking about. And I never saw journalism as something I was going to do long term. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw it as just kind of something I could do right now for whatever I did later. Um, because it just didn't seem sustainable. Um, and it still isn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, how, how did you find it um, not having a journalism degree? Do you think that has hindered you in any way or you mm. know just been like a different kind of progression interesting or... question do you have a journalism degree i do i have a master's so my okay. my first degree was i did environmental geoscience as my first degree Ooh, which I that's so interesting i absolutely hated it honestly i like applied <laughs> to do i applied to do geography so i was like oh i'll do geography and then i'll like specialize in whatever mm. um because i was told not to do a journalism degree because there's no jobs and because I had quite good grades, it was like, why would you do, you know? Anyway, so I went to Edinburgh yeah, yeah. and did that. And then I was like, oh, geography. Everyone keeps asking me if I want to be a geography teacher, which I don't. So I'll change to this, which seems a lot cooler. And in reality, yeah. it was just like geology and I hated it. So yeah, no. And then I did a, a master's in journalism. Um, so I, I never used my first degree ever. And I probably never will. But I find the master's I do. I definitely think it's good if you're coming to journalism to do a master's instead of a yeah. undergraduate degree. This might be controversial, what I'm about to say. Um, I think journalism degrees as undergrads are a bit of a crock of shit because mm-hmm. I think they make people think in the same way. I think they'll obviously equip you with amazing skills um, or skills that editors from the past still deem um, useful, such as shorthand. But um, I don't... I don't think they're 100% necessary. I do find that there are a lot of, I think when you're 18, as I've said earlier, and you go off to university, you don't know exactly what you want to do and you aren't formed as an adult yet. And if you go into something like journalism, it doesn't produce the most innovative thinkers if you're going into 18 and you're just going straight in and you're learning and you're doing this course and you're being churned out of this little journalism factory. Uh, it imbibes in a lot of people what I call scoop mentality which is an idea about journalism, mm. which is, you know, you have to get these particular type of scoops, often politically related, um, often something that seems scandalous, puts you in this Westminster bubble. It doesn't make you, it can, it can make people lose sight of what I think journalism should be about, which is telling stories about for the people who need it most, uh, telling stories in the voices that matter um, and not just telling the stories and upholding the status quo. I think journalism is very much populated by, people who want to uphold the status quo and I think that journalism undergraduate courses uphold the status quo so but then again I don't know how to do shorthand so maybe I have suffered (laughs) well neither do I a a year wasn't long enough for me to learn shorthand I didn't commit myself to it so like that was my fault but um yeah yeah, I think that was probably the main thing about a four-year journalism degree I think mostly you can fit most of it into a master's but maybe for shorthand Mm you might want a bit longer unless you really commit yourself to it which I didn't but do you do you think it um not having shorthand do you think not having shorthand hasn't affected me in the slightest but then I don't do the kind of work that would be needed for I think yeah something like shorthand those are skills that you're needing if you're going to be a court reporter or you're going to do something like real on the beat stuff and most of us nowadays we just use dictaphones or we use phones to record whatever's going on yeah and um, so we can transcribe it later where short shorthand can obviously come in at play but i think shorthand the focus on things like shorthand as 
trying to uphold the reason for why undergraduate journalism degrees are still fit for purpose shows that perhaps they're not um, because if that's the only thing that you can that you need to do a four-year degree for I I'm just I just think the best journalists that I know are people who either don't have any journalism qualifications or did it at masters I think a lot like politics um, you should come to journalism after you've gone out and done something else because I yeah. think you need to get out of the bubble you need to go and see other people you need to think what am I doing this for what is my purpose is it because I want to be in the Westminster lobby and I want to you know be able to hobnob and have lunch maybe with one of Pretty Patel's advisors and get some sort of source or is it because there are stories I want to tell and this is how I'm going to do them and this is my purpose it's like are you doing this for status or are you doing this because you see like a meaningful reason to do it and I think there's too many people in it who are doing it for some sort of status um which is why and also like you see how like journalism is so so riddled with nepotism and elitism mm. which is why some people can get you know times radio shows because their mum was the home secretary <laughs> it's <laughs> it's just it's just it doesn't reward it doesn't reward raw talent and you have to remember that going to journalism but i don't i think you can also still remember that and not lose sight of why you personally do it but that i yeah it's 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 a really it's a profession that can grind you down and make you feel terrible and it's not going to work out for everyone sadly because it is at the nature of the game elitist but if you don't fail to make it in journalism i think it is important to remember it's probably not your fault at the yeah. end of the day like it's not i got lucky at the moment i'm okay in a few years i might not be and that's something i will have to deal with then but at no point do i ever think i'm here because you know i worked harder than someone else i did it better than someone else i'm here because i got the right place in the right time someone else with just the amount of same amount of talent as me might not have done that Speaking of feeling uh, ground down, what what kind of experience did you have with internships or work experience? <laughs> I was so lucky. I <laughs> did one internship and never had to do any more. Um, I had a great experience, weirdly. Um, this See, this is why I'm so unrepresentative in terms of journalism, because I really, yeah, I really got lucky. I did one internship and that was in my final year of university. I saw that Fader, which was my favourite music magazine, was opening a UK office. And I basically applied and I became their first ever UK intern, which was so cool. I did not get paid. That was not a paid thing. But I did, well, because I was at university technically at the time, I still had my student grant. So I could just about make it work alongside my Urban Outfitters job. I did skip every single seminar for one of my last year courses to go and do this internship but it was fine because it was on like the victorians or something so you could just put the coursework together <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it did the funny thing about kings was kings is a very like lax uni when it comes to rep, like um representation it is lax on that but it's lax when it comes to turning up so they're very much because they're one of the like the legacy red brick unis behind the scenes when i was there at least they didn't really give a shit if you didn't go in um they'd caught like i saw my personal tutor three times in three years so if you didn't turn up, so long as you got the grades, they were okay. So so long as I did like the actual reading work and the coursework, they weren't too fussed if I wasn't there. Whereas somewhere like Goldsmiths, which I think has a lot better teaching model, if you didn't turn up, you get warnings, you had to go. Because mm -hmm. I did my thesis at Goldsmiths. And so I, I actually went to those courses and I got a lot more out of it. But I think, yeah, I probably wouldn't have my career if I'd gone to somewhere that actually made me go to the lectures. So um, yeah, so I, got, I did this internship at the Fader. I did it for, I think, three months maybe and it was brilliant it was really good they i got to do some more byline stuff they sent me out and learn a lot of things on um 
just on the ground. I did interviews with actual bands. It was it was all the style of stuff you get in an internship and I didn't have to do any sort of like making a tea or anything like that. So I was really lucky. And then I graduated and I nearly left journalism forever because I was like, it's time to get a proper job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, what made you not leave journalism forever? Well, uh, so... I did a, I was lost, very lost when I graduated. I was, I kept my job at Urban Outfitters because it'd be, it's very stupid to like not do, not do something if you don't have anything else lined up and you have something there. And I, I went and did an internship at an advertising firm for how long? The last two months of summer. So July, August. And I, I was really lucky. It was a, housemate of my cousins who happened to work there and she was like oh you should come do this internship uh it was the london network so i got it through nepotism as a as, which is great um <laughs> love that working for me so i went to work at this advertising firm i didn't really understand what was going on but apparently i was okay i could bullshit enough that they seemed to like it so they offered me a job they were like Can, do you want to become one of our strategic planners and i had no idea what this entailed in now being older i don't know if you know what a strategic planner does but no idea is, sorry to all the strategic planners out there but it's really <laughs> so, it's your sort of planning where content like content sits or like ad spots sit so right. you have to identify where is the best place to put advertisements like which tv space which like little blank bit on spotify which bit on like a which programmatic but on a site like uh, you know the independent where do you put the ads that will get the most traction i would have been so shit at this so i don't i do not think laterally at all so they offered me this job and i'd i'd at the same time i'd applied for the editorial assistant as stylist um on a whim because i'd applied for some other sort of contenty things i was going i was going for like assistant jobs and publishing assistant jobs and i got rejections or had nothing back for all of them so I was kind of like well that's that's kind of dead in the water like I'll just leave that so this was one of the last things I applied for and I remember very very clearly I made I got they wanted like pitch ideas so I decided to do some actually make something creatively for once which I never did because I'm not a blue peter person and I got this like black paper um like almost card and I would cut I cut out my pictures and sort of made um collages to illustrate them to like mood boards to go with mm-hmm. them which was very like year 10 textiles so <laughs> um yeah i sent those off in the post because it was a uh, very old school it was like manual you had to do a manual oh, um, yeah. application i know it was very like i felt like so 90s i sent those off and i expected nothing got an interview wow babbled at my interviewer for a bit it was like cool great um and so i left the interview and then I was about to sign this contract and I thought I, was, I haven't heard from stylists like nothing's going to come of it so I'll just email them and be like oh thank you so much I just wanted to let you know that I've actually I've been offered a job so I can't carry on they were like nope mm-hmm. <laughs> like no uh, can you just meet with that editor like tomorrow please and I was like okay sure fine and <laughs> I when I met the editor Lisa Smosarski who is amazing um, and has helped me so much throughout my career and she was very charming and nice and I left that thinking no more of it and then I got a phone call and they were like we want you to we want you to do this job can you you're hired and so I said I'm really sorry to my strategic planning manager person I'm really sorry um I can't do this job I've got this other offer and they're like that's totally fine like 
you go off and follow your dream. And that was how I managed to get what at that time was literally my dream job, which doesn't happen. I want to really stress this. This does not happen much. And I'm not saying that because I'm to be like, oh my God, I I got this. I did this amazing thing. It's because I don't want people to go in and think this is how journalism works. It isn't, especially now because the money is all gone. There Mm -hmm. is the money that was there a couple of years ago, even when I was there, isn't there anymore. Shortlist, which was Stylist Fraternal Magazine, shut down. That's been closed. Uh, A lot of these like freemium magazines that came up at that time, they've been closed. So many, every day we hear about a new round of layoffs. Those jobs just aren't there anymore in the same way. So I don't want people who might be listening who are currently searching for jobs to think that it's their failure that's stopping them getting these positions or having an experience like that. It's not, there is no money left. Yeah. Um, what, what would you say your day to day was like when you were an editorial assistant? Uh, exciting, busy. There's a lot of cake. Uh, <laughs> so anyone who's worked in women's magazines knows that there is a disgusting amount of free food, uh, which, so you, you almost never have to buy anything. It's, it's honestly disgusting the amount of free food you get. But what I would do is I'd go in at, I think, what time was it? 9.30. It was a good day. It was a good timing in the day. So 9.30 till six, I'd come in, I'd check emails. There'd be a morning meeting, a morning print meeting. Later there was a morning digital meeting that I also attended. As an editorial assistant, I worked across both digital and editorial by the end of my tenure there because I'd sort of been like, I want to do more writing. And I did two pages in the magazine, but they were small mini ones. And I wanted a bit more sort of, to get more bylines under my belt as it were. So I said, look, can I expand my remit? Can I do some natural like articles? So they let me sort of loosen digital, which is amazing. Um, and that's a really good tip actually. If you are in a position where you're in a, you know, you're in, um, you're working in a role that doesn't let you do as much writing as you might want to, definitely, ask if you can work with other teams if you've got time if you don't feel you're not being pushed enough or you feel you have that spare time don't do it if you don't do it will push you too hard or you won't have that extra um kind of time capital but if you do ask just be like look can i work with them can i go do this for a day can i just take a couple of hours and write this that's a really good way to get your name out there so i would yeah we'd do our two meetings planning meeting all that then i would sort of just sit down and get on with whatever came to me whether that was meeting a deadline i would manage interns as well so sometimes it was just talking to interns um giving them tasks uh writing a lot of article writing if it was digital pitching ideas coming up with ideas organizing meeting rooms meeting people downstairs because you kind of do the role of personal assistant to the editors and you're doing the role of like a i guess a very junior writer so you straddle a lot of things it was yeah it was very busy it was very hectic but it was also fun there was so many opportunities I got as a stylist. It was an amazing um, introduction into the industry and it equipped me with so many skills. Like I'm so thankful to the whole team there. And after, I was looking at your LinkedIn, after you were at Stylist, you were at the BBC, was that right? I was at the BBC for only three months. I did it for three months. I was working on BBC Three. Uh, that was interesting. <laughs> That was interesting. <laughs> um, BBC jobs, they're, you know, they're obviously notoriously competitive mm. to, to get. Is there any advice you would give to people applying for BBC jobs? Oh, well, I didn't. The reason I was only there for three months is I didn't have to go through an interview panel. I got that job through someone else who recommended me to fill a role. 
which was later, the role was later eliminated after the three months. Um, so I didn't, so the way BBC works is they work on fixed term contracts, mm-hmm. which are notoriously finickety and often, often if you, if you're not in the door, in the door, you have a proper contract then you can be kicked out. But they also say in the BBC that once you're in properly, like if you, if you'd gone before an interview panel, you're in, you're in for life, which is why the BBC is struggling so much at the moment because a lot of mm. the old dinosaurs, um, had, they never turn over and they won't leave and they just get shuffled around to different departments. Like that's what happens. So in terms of getting a job at the BBC, I can't actually offer too much advice other than contacts. Sadly, the BBC, as far as I've experienced it, works a lot on contacts, who you know, and if they're part of a certain demographic, it is very at the mid-level management level. I've said mid-level management level twice. At the mid-level management level, which works fine, um, then it is very much populated by white middle-class people, often who went to private school, often who know each other. If you can get in with like a junior junior journalist or whatever who'll introduce you, that's fine. If you can write for them freelance, that's fine. But I would say it's who you know to get in there. Um, if you're applying through the site, the process is probably a lot blinder. Like if you're applying properly, it's going to be a much fairer um, situation. Although the demographics at the BBC sort of speak to the fact there still is a lot of inbuilt biases there. But yeah, my time there was interesting. It is, it is a company that has not moved with the times and it is a company that doesn't yet know how to and keeps making the same mistakes over and over again and doesn't quite listen. It doesn't matter how many, I guess, diversity processes they run or how many attempts they make to modernize they just haven't done it and that's because it's the top of the tree that is the problem it's not the bottom the bottom is full of amazing talented people um, who have fresh ideas and are burning bursting even to share them with those up top but they keep getting pigeonholed in the same roles again and again again or they they will bring up one single junior journalist and they'll become like a star and then they've got this whole swathe of talent who's just ignored and it's not good enough. What was your, your day to day like when you were working there? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would have to, I got in at like 8am or 8.30. It was a horrible commute actually. That was probably like quite a big influence, a horrible commute. Um, I'd get in and then I'd have to pitch some ideas to my boss at the time. Who, and then uh, we'd write them up. I at the time we were doing sort of it was kind of strange we were doing sort of contenty stuff that was more in line with uh viral content that you need mm. to do if you're looking to get advertiser clicks but the bbc doesn't run on advertiser clicks so it didn't quite make much sense um but i would also do long form pieces and uh features where i would go out and try and find stories that were relevant to the bbc3 audience and those were really interesting it would be yeah i think my week was pretty much the morning would be spent doing it, firing off a quick piece and then the afternoon would be spent working on a longer form piece that I had in the vaults. So it was a, it was a slower, it was a slower pace, which was good um, and enjoyable. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was, it taught me a lot. It taught me a lot of skills. It taught me a lot about working in a massive company. It taught me a lot about working in a legacy company like that. And it taught me how to navigate managerial issues. Mm-hmm. And what, in what way do you think there you know it needs to be modernized or 
Oh, uh, how many, how do you count those? <laughs> uh, it doesn't listen to young people and it doesn't have transparency in the way it needs to. It says it does, but it doesn't. And the problem with the BBC is the BBC, when you're, and I say this as someone who's worked in there and has been subject to the editorial process they go through, you have like about six editors who'll look up your work to make sure it's in line with BBC values. But BBC values are automatically centre-right because of the prevailing like, economy or prevailing um, status quo. So any position it sees as objective is a centre-right position. And that's not to say I think you should be like, everything left-wing is correct. Um, even though I am obviously left-wing, but if I put in anything, for example, if I put in a link to something left-wing, then it would be deemed it was so extreme that like, even, even if it was a neutral body, such as a rent union giving a quote, they'd be like, this is really extreme. So we have to put in a really right-wing mm. extreme quote to balance it. They didn't understand what balance was. And that's what's got the BBC in so much trouble at the moment. They think mm-hmm. balance is literally opposing sides. Balance is presenting objective, as much objective evidence as you can on something so if you're you know criticizing a policy or something like that if the evidence is saying this policy can be criticized that's fine that is balance that's objective you're putting that forward and you're showing people um but they don't understand balance they also don't understand diversity very well it gets lost they have a lot of junior talented people who are from poc like they're, they're people of color um or they're from low-income backgrounds um but they don't get promoted enough and often they there's so many young black and brown people that I've talked to personally who've worked for the BBC and left because mm-hmm. of the racism they face, which is institutionalised and it's institutionalised in so many media organisations, but the BBC doesn't deal with it well at all. They just make promises or create new diversity funds and then nothing ever happens. Um, it needs to understand that its, it's, it's value does not lie in chasing the models of new media. So it can modernise without be trying to be, you know, the next vice or something. At the moment, the BBC is trying to copy, especially when it comes to youth content. They they have they have a very small audience under thirty five. They're desperate to get the under thirty fives, mm-hmm. um, and at the moment, they're trying to copy the models set by something like Buzzfeed or, you know, Vice, um, and try and copy the kind of content they do formats. But that's not going to work for them. That's not what they do. What they do is amazing deep long reporting like some of the stuff they've done has been recently has been fantastic there was um this fantastic piece they did about the refugee boat that went missing in the middle of the mediterranean beautifully illustrated so poignant so like really introduced you to that crisis and what's going on there that's the kind of stuff they do in depth that is really good they did an amazing piece as well about um what's the word the young people who were shielding and what that felt like they when they do stuff right they do it amazingly well and when they tap into the talent they do it brilliantly when they do it on their terms rather than trying to copy other um, organizations to get that under 35 audience um, they need to learn how to recognize what's what plays with the audience that that they can do within their remit um, and they also need to sort of i guess move with the times more they're seen as very outdated and it's funny because they're seen as outdated like our country is very polarized at the moment um well the uk is very polarized in terms of left and right and it's funny because both left and right are mad at the bbc in different ways mm-hmm. so they're, they're <laughs> finding it difficult they've, they've, they've got they've got a lot of work to do but obviously i i'm not head of the bbc so i can't do anything <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's interesting to hear a perspective from someone that's worked there and no longer mm. works you know um when when did you make the shift to being fully freelance that was after the bbc so my contract ended and i was just kind of like oh well there's no staff jobs anymore because in 
yeah, that was in 2019. So in the three years that I'd been a stylist and then gone to the BBC, it was, yeah, all the jobs are gone. Mm -hmm. Those three years you'd seen BuzzFeed go from like this titan with so much money to closing down almost all its offices. Um, And it was, it was the tightening of the belt had really stuck in this, there's the journalistic recession as it were was in full swing. So I, there wasn't really a choice. It wasn't a decision. It was more like I had to do it and I didn't know what else I wanted to do. I got very depressed actually, um, which I think a lot of people do when they're making big shifts and they're not really sure. And I think it's also, you know, quarter life crisis situation. I was 23 and I just sort of petered along. I didn't really have much idea of what I wanted to specialize in, what I wanted to pursue i didn't have a focus again i'd lost sight of what i was doing it for and i was just caught sort of pootling along it's, it's really funny those those first few months of freelancing is quite a blur because i was so scared i wasn't sure exactly what i was going to do and i wasn't sure exactly what i wanted to work on so it was more just throwing shit at the wall and hoping something stuck how did you start getting regular work uh good question i still don't know um <laughs> <laughs> It, what did I do? I, I managed to strike upon the time on a tradition of what the secret the freelance journalist won't tell you, shifts, shift work. Um, the key to being a freelance journalist who can, this is, this is almost a pretty much a given. Any freelance journalist who's making ends meet behind the scenes, they're either doing some shift work somewhere or they are doing some regular work on editing or publishing. They are working somewhere. They have a regular gig going on. Freelance work alone, unless you are someone who, you know, has the big, big bucks and that, you know, big name. Um, unless you're like, I guess, probably like Ash Shakar, but even she is Navara, then you will need to have something regular and consistent if you want to pay your bills and you want to know, you want to have that security. So I was really lucky I started working with first at first I did some work for stylist still I I did I went back into some digital work and then I was lucky enough to get booked for some gigs at independent on the lifestyle desk by an old contact because they knew that I was looking for stuff I was still writing bits occasionally for vice and things like that but I was not really pitching as much I mean I still pitched because it's I had to to eat but I was very much I was demoralized so shift work kind of kept me going at that point and then as I got bit, as there was more comfort in the shift work, I don't think my freelance career really, I was in so much debt by about October um, in two different overdrafts, which was really fun and great. So two different overdrafts and I had bills to pay and all of that. Um, and I don't think I started being secure and able to pay my rent without worrying. So every month I could pay it. I could just about scrape that rent together and I could just about eat, but it was, every time they would go a bit further into the overdrafts until I was touching cloth on them. And it was, and then I, they would top up again. And, but then I, when I got more regular work at the independent, then I started, yeah, it started coming together a bit more. And I started slowly, very slowly, not being as worried, being sure I could put my rent aside, being okay. And when that happened, I also started doing some more freelancing for Galdem who got me in and, to do some regular stuff and once the thing is with freelancing is once the ball starts rolling a little bit other people take notice of you but it's a real diff it's a difficult catch 22 because you have to get those bylines in the first place to get those other bylines 
So once people start seeing that you can work and that you're there and that you, you know, other people want you, suddenly you're hot property and other other people get in touch and they'll start noticing your work and they'll start seeing what you can do. But to get that in the first place and to become more than just, you know, every other person who's out there looking for the same kind of byline as you is really difficult. So if people are going freelance, my advice is definitely 100%. See if you can get a regular gig, even if that's not in writing per se you don't have to be in content writing 24 7 you can be doing as i said editing you can be working in comms for someone you could be doing part-time you know admin work somewhere but that regular gig is the life and that regular gig is what's going to fund essentially your freelancing career because that's what needs to happen at first you need to fund yourself what does your typical week look like these days so uh, three days a week, I work at the Indie 100, which does sort of more, I guess, virally news, which is really fun. Um, it's very fast paced. It's, it's, I do that from 8 a.m. till 5 p.m. Um, from Monday, Thursday and Friday. And that's my sort of regular gig. That gives me my security, my rent money. Um, and I have some amazing editors there who are really fun and let me experiment with things, which is great. And then two days a week at the moment, I'm working on a podcast. Um, this is another thing that I was lucky enough to do. So because I worked at Galdem and I eventually, they got me in to cover their political editor role. Then I got asked to appear on some podcasts and because I appeared on, and also I was really lucky last year, which I should mention, I did a course called the Spotify sound up course, which is for women of color. And that was life changing in terms of confidence and resetting myself and making, and making me feel like I had, other options and I could put my talents to good use somewhere else that was amazing so podcasting and audio was something I really wanted to get into and it's something I'd worked on and because of the contacts I met there and also because of Galdem I started working with a company called Broccoli Content who make brilliant podcasts they've got an anthem series coming out soon so check that out I am on it but um, so I because of that and they they then got in touch and were like uh we're working on this new idea uh because you've you've come on several times and we can hear that you love to talk and you love to talk um so they were like do you would you be interested in hosting this podcast and um i was like yes of course it's going to be about british slavery we're working on it now so two days a week i work on that sometimes on wednesdays if i have a bit of extra time i will also do some commissions um and on sometimes every other week i'd say at the moment on saturdays or something i will do some more work and take on an extra commission but i very much try and keep my boundaries in place because that's another thing about freelancing you've got to try and create a balance otherwise you will burn out and you will this is why you also need that regular gig to be honest because otherwise if you're trying to freelance all the time on just individual articles or individual projects that will push you under you will drown um unless you are i don't know beyonce but beyonce is beyonce there's only one of her so you need to you need some sort of like regular gig that starts at a certain time ends at a certain time gives you that regular money so that you can say okay after 5 p.m i've clocked off i mm-hmm. i this is my work hours and then two days a week if it's a bit freer that's much better for me because i have my podcast stuff so i'll have a meeting in the morning and then i will work on research or i work on getting an interviewer or scouting locations or something um and then i might have another meeting but it's a lot more sort of two days where it's less content 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 and then if i do saturday saturday sort of for the fun if every other week is for the fun content pieces where i'm just like oh i really wanted to do this for this publication i haven't written for them before so you know i'll give up one saturday to do it but i won't take on big 
in-depth reporting at the moment or anything like that because it's just not feasible Mm -hmm. so you have to be honest with yourself about what you're going to be able to achieve and what you can deliver a thing that I started doing once I got a bit more used to freelancing is realizing that I should add two days to any deadline I ask for (laughs) so if I think I can do something in x amount of time add two to it because then if I get it done in x amount of time I've given it in two days early and then if I don't you have that extra time you have to be so um so realistic about life and when it gets in the way and sometimes that your brain won't work and sometimes that it will and that removing that pressure ironically makes it easier to do it Mm -hmm. and when before when you weren't doing podcast stuff how much would you say editors are approaching you versus you're approaching them interesting um editors i definitely don't pitch that much which is very lucky. I think, frankly, that's due to several factors. One, um, funnily enough, BLM. I'm a mixed race woman. I'm at the moment catnip for editors. And I just have to be frank about that. Like they are looking more to diversify some writers. So a lot of the time people will come to you and be like, oh, uh, they won't necessarily, I always say, I don't want to just write about race. I don't mm-hmm. want to just write about my identity being mixed race. Um, but if they're looking for somebody and I think I can do the article they're looking for, if it, even if it's not related to race, then I'm like, yeah. But I, I know that right now they're probably approaching me more than they would have done perhaps two years ago because they're doing that. And a lot of the time, if if I don't think I'm a good fit for a thing, I will turn down an opportunity. There's This is also a thing behind the scenes. A lot of freelancers turn down things that you don't see. Well, I actually, I don't know. I know a lot of I know a lot of POC freelancers will turn down and they'll talk to their networks and say, oh, do you want to do this? Or um, I I have a policy that if I don't think I'm a good fit, I will suggest editorially, I will suggest two different names or writers that they won't consider, that they would not have considered before, especially if they're regionally based, because it's so important to make this less London centric. And it's so important to get talented voices out there who can do the job um, Mm -hmm. and who they might not be aware of. So if an editor approaches me and I'm just like, uh do you want to try this person or if i don't think i can do a project um because just because i look like i could because i'm brown or something um but i don't actually have like you know the experience to do that i don't think necessarily you need lived experience to do everything but i think there's some things you do for example i was a you know approached to talk on a very high profile um mainstream bbc show about blm a couple of months ago and i was like i'm not the person to talk about this because i'm not involved in blm like i'll go to the protests but i'm not organizing i don't know what the future is you need to talk to a dark-skinned black Mm -hmm. activist who is organizing in this thing um and then they had the nerve to go and approach two of my mixed race colleagues (laughs) at galdem so they don't listen to you but it's, it's that thing of like, you have to try and make the change yourself, sadly. So um, I just do definitely approach me more at the moment, which is a very privileged position to be in and I, I enjoy it. But I'm always looking for more people to approach me. So if you'd like to work with me, people, um, feel free to hit me up. <laughs> and um, <laughs> do you want to plug your, your at or your email? Or... My at? <laughs> oh my, yeah, yeah. Feel free to hit me up. I'm at mlothianmclean on Twitter and my website is moyalothianmclean.co.uk. That's also a top tip. If you have a spare 15 quid, mm. get a website. Because um, I bought my domain for 15 quid and I just made it on Squarespace and it takes five minutes and it's it's paid dividends. Set that up, just get just get the basic bones. Like mine's such a bare bones situation. Um, but I've got a lot of work through that through, from people who wouldn't approach you directly via email but they will 
put a form in or something like that. And um, yeah, I've got some really good corporate work from that as well. So it's, it's a definite goer. You mentioned that you've been um, get a guest on shows. You've been on Women's Hour. Mm. Um, what's that kind of process like? How do people approach you? All that kind of it's, stuff. Uh, getting getting approached for it's so funny when you become slightly of a. I wouldn't call myself a talking head at all. Yeah, I'm I'm not even rent a gob status, but I have been on a couple. Uh, it's it's interesting. It's 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 very easy. Like the thing is about a lot of producers. Um, if they're coming from old media like the BBC, they're very like sort of quick. They want to get a guest as soon as possible. Your name will have just crossed their path um, by chance, which is why I think it's also important to try and give them as many names as possible because they're not lazy, but they are very busy. And if you can do their job half for them, then they're like, that's fine. They'll take your suggestions. So that's really simple. They just kind of say like, do you want to come and talk about this? And you have to be like, yes, no. What does this entail? And always ask for a fee if it's a big company because there's usually is one hidden away, but you might not know it with a smaller, with a smaller company or something smaller. Uh, it's, it's pretty much the same, but you just don't, you're just not like asking for fees or anything. Like if it's something like this, I'm never going to be like, pay me 50 quid. Um, because it's enjoyable and it's a fun thing. Whereas if it's someone, a big thing like the BBC where they want me to come on and talk about, you know, a piece I've did or, or something that gets them a new audience, then I'm going to be like, give me some money. Uh, <laughs> it, it really depends on context. They're really, they're, it's, it's really fun. I think it's interesting because I've worked in radio production, so I'm aware of how they book guests. And a lot of times, it's just a very long list of the same old people, which is why it's so it's so vital to just kind of be like, you can get new voices in, and that's what's going to make it more interesting. There's so many talented people out there, and they're usually online as well, and they're really easy to find if you just do a couple of Google searches. So. Um, that's yeah it's, it's a very simple process but once you're on their radar you don't go off their radar so because i've been on one bbc show they'll probably never book me again now if they hear this but <laughs> <laughs> you're on the list sorry bbc <laughs> um but <laughs> yeah with other things as well it's like um i think i think what i like most is actually what is coming and talking to new projects like this like this kind of podcast or with broccoli or places like that because i don't know it's it's, it's really refreshing like connecting with people in this way and getting to talk to people who are starting up something or starting something without, you know, the backing of the old legacy media. It's, it's exciting because it's, yeah, there's something more like we're all in this together. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any networking tips? Oh, okay. My networking tip, don't be fake. Like just don't be fake. My net, number one networking tip is generally network only with people that you are interested in networking with. Mm. So, you know, if you see someone that you think is really dope and really cool, just reach out to them and like you don't even have to have any purposes don't reach out to someone because you think you should or you think that they can do something for you that is not going to form a network i always think of a network as you are just connecting with people that you want to align with and that you want to be like i think what you do is really amazing i i think i have some skills i would love to like either just chat or collaborate here's something i can bring to this or if there is you know a company that you think you can improve reach out to them. Like I know of someone who recently there's a big um, members club brand and she was like, you guys are really lacking in the representation at your events. I'm an events expert. Let's talk. They got her in, they hired her. It's that sort of thing. If you think you can bring something to a brand or company that you know really well about or a publication, just chat to them. But yeah, it basically don't be fake because fake intentions are 
people can sense it and also it doesn't serve you it makes you feel disingenuous and it'll make you feel bad about what you're doing it won't make you feel meaningful it'll make you feel very snaky like this is not a game of like becky sharp and vanity fair this is literally just this is your career if you want to make it something meaningful then you have to put that work in and be like okay i really like what you're doing that's why i'm going to connect with you not you're going to serve me so well i'm going to climb on you to get to the top um, because that shows and then people do come back and bite you in the ass about that mm-hmm. i think in terms of networking um just what i've noticed in the last few years is how much of a tool twitter is and that's mm. not something that's not something you really get to like when i did a master's in journalism it's still kind of uh, it's not very new age you know and you're told to have mm. this this twitter that's completely like sterile and just like you know i mean i guess it depends what kind of what kind of journalism you want to do but um do you think having a personality online is more beneficial than just tweeting you know regurgitating headlines i don't know yeah sadly sadly um personal brand is a massive thing about journalism but i think we've I th- well, modern journalism anyway. I think this is something that if you come from a background that has not got connections, or if you come from a you know a low-income background, or you come from a background where you don't have those links in the media, then that's when your personal brand, as it were, is something that becomes vital. And this is really sad, but there was a great essay, I think, on women and personal branding it, that was originally in Study Hall and then got published in The Guardian, which was all about you know the personal industrial complex and how women in particular have to sort of sell themselves via personal essays first and you know have this real mm. vibrant Sub presence stories. online. But, yeah, but also just vibrant presence. Like They're like, you know, they're funny and they like make people like them and they, they you know they have a big social media presence first before they get all those commissions. And I think that's also very true, sadly, for minorities at the moment. Like if you have a big personal brand online, then people see you from these big organizations and they want to be led. They want to know what's cool. So if they see someone who's blowing up on Twitter or has thousands of followers, they're going to go to them. Sometimes this results in people who actually aren't very good writers becoming mm. sort of writers and op-ed people. Um, and sometimes this results in like amazingly talented people like Shante Joseph. She's, she's huge on Twitter and stuff now, but she's put in the work for that. Like she's great. Um, they, they, they rightly get like the plaudits they deserve and more people see them. But I, a lot of people within my sphere who are writers are like, I would love to log off Twitter forever, but I can't because I need it for my job. And I personally benefited mm-hmm. from it so much. I created a new per, like professional profile. And by professional, I mean, just doesn't tweet about like, anal that much um on on, like last at the end of last year and my the amount of work I've got from just doing that and making it slightly more less stream of consciousness and more kind of like a snippet of personality with some more kind of sprinklings of like seriousness mixed in that's that's made people like really sit up and listen and it's funny because before I was just like I had a big, not big Twitter profile, but I had a, I had a, you know, I'd been on Twitter since 2011 and I just tweeted like whatever. And, you know, I had all that stuff there. It was just mixed in with everything else. And because now I've streamlined it a bit more, people are like, Oh, oh who's this new person who's come on the scene? Who's uh, tweeting her. Uh, she's browner. She did this. Oh, I've not heard of her. I'm going to book her. And it's, it's really funny how quickly you can just reinvent yourself and get yeah. people to, you know, um, buy into that brand as it were but yeah it's really it's a sad fact but social media a presence on social media is going to get you places um in this day and age if you're a young person who doesn't already have those existing connections 
And um, just to finish off, um, what is there any other advice other than what we've covered in terms of, you know, what you would give to young women looking to have a similar career to yourself? Oh, similar career to myself. Bloody hell, who'd want that? <laughs> oh, don't, don't be silly. <laughs> no, um, similar career. Okay. First of all, reach out to someone else. Reach out to somebody you respect and somebody who you think you can give advice. If you look up to someone, talk to them because they're probably very willing to like help you out. And that is something that, and I don't, I don't think that necessarily you need to have a mentor, but I think having somebody there who can guide you or just make you feel who has the knowledge and knows the industry and can give you a helping hand or maybe some contacts, that is invaluable. Like that is amazing. That is my first bit of advice. My second bit of advice is have a backup plan. Um, if it doesn't work out, you need to know where that rent money is coming from. If, unless you have a rich family, if you're a rich family, I'm not talking to you. This is not for you. <laughs> <laughs> this is not for you. Uh, if you, yeah, have a backup plan. Um, try and get like a job rate vaguely related or part-time work vaguely related to writing somewhere you can do stretch your skills, do that kind of thing. But you know, also will get you, get you that sweet rent money and make sure that you're, you're got enough security to do the freelancing. Um, my third one is also if you're not getting bylines and you're not getting the commissions write on medium publish your own articles do things independently because you know i i wrote this i did this one piece that was about women's clubs women's members clubs and it had been initially commissioned for another magazine and they just jettisoned and i was just like fuck it i'm gonna just publish it i published it and i wouldn't say it blew up but it did really well and it got a lot of respect from people that i would love to have got the attention of and it's that and i've written other personal things that i've put on medium that's got me a whole new i guess audience that i wouldn't have got through you know the same things it shows you can show your range by independently publishing things and you won't just get you know relegated to writing personal essays about a breakup or um having to get opinion pieces i would also say um definitely be aware you can set your boundaries I think in the early kind of personal essay industrial complex, a lot of young women in particular had to get into this industry via writing very deeply traumatic and sometimes um, very deeply personal essays. Uh, that's not something you have to do and that's not as much traction. You can push back against that. And I would also say push back against being pigeonholed if you can, because sometimes you can, yeah, women, young women in particular, can get pigeonholed and especially if you're a young woman of color or even a person of color you can get pigeonholed into writing about the things that the white middle class editors want you to write about which might be just your identity and you can you're you're more than that like it's part of you and it makes you but you can do more than that and you can write more than that and don't let people just put you in a box if you don't want to be put in that box that was journalist moya lothian mclean you can find her on Twitter at mlothianmclean. I'll be back with another episode in two weeks. If you like this episode, please subscribe and rate and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. You can find the podcast on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at She's Creative Pod. And I'm on social media at underscore Claire Hutch. See you next time.